On my way to school, driving my 1986 Ford Bronco, two-tone blue, all-terrain tires, full-wheel drive, and every man said, oh, oh, oh. Or don't say it, obviously, I guess. But I loved that truck. I remember I was driving it. I was foolish forever selling it. And it was a unique vehicle in that day that uh, had a lot of still old features on it. Some of you may or may not have had cars where you can recall to dim the lights, you would actually click a button on the floorboard. Right now, some kids are going like, what, floorboard? And in 10 years, we'll be like, what? We actually had to do something to make the lights dim. And so not only that, there was also the radio that uh, I didn't have buttons, didn't even have a CD player. And kids were like, what's a CD already? <laughs> like, man. But you had to click it on and roll it on to turn the power and the volume up. And not only that, to find a radio station, you had to turn the dial and watch the little meter go by and try and go to try and find a station and hopes that you could find a station, land on a station and actually be clear and stay clear while you're driving around. It was menacing. And I remember that morning, 16 years old, driving to school, and because of how difficult it is to find that station and stay on a station and it stay clear, I left my radio on one station growing up in Camden, Arkansas. I had it on 96.1, and I just left it there. Even when there was a song that I didn't like, Britney Spears came on, I just turned the radio off because I was not going to mess with the dial. And so... I left it there, it was on all the time, driving to school that morning, and I remember the song being interrupted with the broadcast that a plane had hit the North Tower. And as a 16-year-old, um, not at all really acquainted with the world of financial, global, all that stuff, I was going like, oh, that's crazy, like a plane hit a building in New York City? How did that even happen? How did the dude not see? Like, how? And then, of course, I get to school, and I remember being in school, and it wasn't very long after that everybody was pulled into the same room, and they wheeled in a TV, and the news was turned on, and for a couple of hours, our jaws were on the floor. As we watched those horrific events unfold, as we watched the egregious, terrifying attack and even that day, the rest of the day at school was just sitting there, all of us watching in shock with fear rising when we began to realize, oh, that wasn't an accident. And we heard about the Pentagon and then the field in Pennsylvania and the feelings, the emotions, the terror that was rising. And so much to the degree that by lunchtime, they were like, yeah, go home, guys. We're not going to get anything done at school today. Go be with your families. And that day, I left, got in my Bronco, called my dad, said, hey, dad, on my Nokia with the snake, yeah. Called my dad, said, hey, dad. And he's like, son, go straight to a gas station. I'm like, okay. I, of course, 16-year-old young guy, didn't think about the ramifications of what that could mean for all those things. So listen to my dad, go straight to a gas station fill up after I'm in line behind like 20 cars and the gas tank or the gas station ran out of gas not long after I was there. It's just crazy seeing the terror and the fear 
and everything that we all, those of you who are old enough, remember feeling and experiencing that day. And then after that, in the coming hours, the coming days, the coming weeks, seeing this crazy unity that began to happen. That on that day, if you were down there, ground zero is what we call it nowadays, and if you've been in our society, ground zero sends your brain to that day in that moment, even though ground zero can mean a lot of different things. We go to September 11th, and I remember that day, if you were there, there wasn't any, I'm a New Yorker, where are you from, before I help you. There wasn't any, do our skin tones match? There wasn't even, are you American? There was this sense, this greater sense of this common enemy, this common terror, and this common humanity that united everybody in a way that I had not seen in my, at that point, 16 years of life. To where then, driving around the next few days, you start seeing everybody is putting American flags on their vehicles. They're getting those ones that stick up out of the window. I saw people getting them and tying them into the back of the beds of their trucks. Everybody's driving around with American flags. Every business, every church, everywhere there's flags, everywhere. There was this unity that was born out of this, this feeling violated by this common enemy. And even though it was an American thing, it was beyond that. It was deeper than that. It was a, a human thing that came out of that common fear, that common terror, that common concern, that common compassion. Last week, we were in Ephesians chapter 2, and we read what I think is the best summary nutshell of the gospel, being Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through, um, 1 through 10, where Paul says, and you who were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Let's read it, verse three. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like who? Yeah, it's not a, not a trick. It's right there. The rest... <laughs> of mankind. No gotchas planned, okay? Verse 3, let's read that again. Among whom we all once walked or once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the unity that we saw that day in our nation, no, this isn't a sermon about 9-11. It's hard to believe it was 20 years ago already. This isn't a sermon about that. It's not a sermon about patriotism or anything like that. But as I was studying preparing, I saw some pretty significant connections that we could draw there of how the common enemy caused a unity to where even people that were vitriolic to each other in the days right before. I'm thinking of the video of the image I saw where there's a baseball, baseball game where the active president George Bush goes out to throw the first pitch in a stadium that's full of people who there were plenty of people who loved him and plenty of people who hated him. And I'm not here to say yes or no, 
But all these people who loved him and hated him, when he comes out as the president representing the country at this baseball game to throw out the first pitch, everybody, this crowd starts going, USA, USA, you. And it was like, I remember watching that and feeling like this, yeah, like, and, and you'd see that and feel that and sense that amongst everybody. We're like, yeah, we're together in this. Against that enemy, that mysterious peculiar enemy that we can't even really see. We can't even really put our thumb on like Al-Qaeda and maybe this guy, Osama bin Laden, but there was so much mystery and so much, but, but there was an enemy out there and we're all together in this. And we can look at this gospel where Paul's saying, we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're nature of or children of wrath by nature, like the rest of mankind. And if we will allow scripture to help us step back and see the common enemy, the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And remember, we were the sons of disobedience. We were there. And in a day that feels really far removed, when we look back at that day and the following days where everybody felt like we were all in this together, here we are 20 years later, does it feel like that? No. Far from it. And I think sometimes we need to let the word of God remind us that we have a common enemy not only a common enemy, but a common condition. And this is the same exact letter where Paul writing to the Ephesian church in chapter six goes on to say, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual places. Talking about that prince of the power of the air that he cites in chapter two, comes back to it in chapter six when he says, the enemy is him. And that's who we're fighting against. And can we let that make us all go like that day back then where we look at the enemy and let that unite us, not only the enemy, but our Savior who redeems us from the enemy, from his tyranny, from his terror, from the oppression of sin. And let that unite us in Christ. That verbiage among whom we all once lived, but praise God, it doesn't just stop there. And it is in past tense, because if we pick up in verse four, here comes the, sum the gospel summary. But God, being rich, I love that word right there, rich in mercy, meaning there's plenty to go around. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. I remember uh, just a few days ago, seeing a video, 9-11, 20th anniversary was approaching, and I saw a video of a guy, I I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but um, who was a survivor from the 105th floor of the South Tower. He was in the highest occupied floor of the South Tower that day. And he was telling his story of how he got out and what it was like and the things he witnessed and experienced and on the 105th floor in the South Tower, first the plane hit the North Tower, 
They felt it, lights flickered, like what's going on? They didn't know, they didn't see. The people on the building tell them to evacuate. They start going down 105 flights of stairs. And they got down and it was when he was just below, like a minute past where the plane would strike, he was just safe. Went just above him. And then he's going down further and further. And he said when he got to about the 35th floor was when he first encountered first responders, policemen, firemen, EMTs, who unlike everyone else, were going up. And he said he looked at them and saw their faces and he could tell they knew they were never coming back. This man went on to say, I don't know how people can be that brave. I don't know how people can make themselves do that. Now, I can't speak for them. I'm assuming it's probably the greater sense of duty that they felt that drove them up those stairs into what was probably a certain death, and we now know was an imminent death. And the conflict that I'm willing to bet that they even had in their own heart and mind And the many displays of heroism that we saw that day and in the days that would follow. And I can't help but recall the scene from Scripture in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus knows exactly what he's about to go through. He's not even wondering, you know, if I go up this tower, maybe, maybe not, probably. He's going to the cross knowing exactly what he's about to go through. And he's so grieved and so vexed over it that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, he's weeping, he's so in turmoil, internally wrestling with this that he's sweating blood. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way we can do this, let this cup pass from me. Meaning, if there's another way that we can reconcile mankind back into the family, there's any way we can redeem these sinners other than this, other than me drinking the cup of your wrath on the cross, if we could do this any other way, can we please do it? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How can anyone be so brave? How can anyone be so heroic? Not having question, but knowing what he would face, knowing what he would bear. Not only the physical pain, not only the nails and the lashes and the cross and the asphyxiation, the the suffocation, not only the beating, not only the spear, not only the crown of thorns and the spitting and the shame, but bearing upon himself the sin of, of mankind. And he said, I, no man takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. Why? Was it a sense of duty like those who were going up the stairs? To an extent, yes. He knew that he had to accomplish the work that was set before him. But it wasn't just the duty, because verse 4 said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And the crazy thing, the peculiar thing even beyond that 
is this, this, these next phrases and words tell us that we were actually still enemies with him when he did this. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, look at this word, the immeasurable. You can't quantify it. You can't limit it. You can't put a cap or a bottom on it. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In case you ever wonder, is there still grace for me? I know I've stumbled this many times. How could I sin this way again? How could I fall short one more time? There are immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards those, those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Verse eight, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, not our own, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the gospel that we just read, that story, that summary, that even though we were dead, even though we were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, satanic, demonic forces, even though we, like everyone else, followed the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that even though that was us, the great mercy, the great love of God saves us by grace. And because of that grace, it says that no one may boast. We want to say, God, why? Why wouldn't you let us just do our part? Like, sure, okay, pay for our sin on the cross, but can't we do like a little something, something? Like, can't I bring my part to the table? At least like you, even if you want to do most of the work, can't I do some of the work to at least feel like I contributed? But it's written there that no one can boast. See, when you recognize that you are hopelessly dead in sin, and that it is the grace of God, the free gift that you cannot earn, that pulled you up out of your sin, the only possible response is humble worship and gratitude to God. There is no swagger in the walk of the Christian. The person who has been saved by somebody else. Let's talk, let's talk not about the gospel, but if you had impending death coming, if you were in the tower and you were trapped, or if you were in the rubble there on that day and you were trapped and couldn't get out and you're thinking, I'm going to die here. And then those workers are doing everything they can to pull, and they get you out. You were trapped and they get you out. Do you go, man, I did it. No. You're hugging them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I thought I was dead. And spiritually we go, thank you. I was dead. Thank you. So we don't sit here walking around going, man, look at me. 
I'm so spiritual, man. I know this many Bible verses. I give this much to church. I attend this often. I do these good deeds and I serve over here and I do all this. No, 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 no. All of that is, thank you. Can I do these things to just, I know I can't earn it. I know I can't pay it, but, but I'm so thankful that I feel compelled to give of who I am and what I have. See, the grace of God humbles our hearts into deeply indebted gratitude. People who have been saved don't just go about their life as they did before. Someone who sees impending death and was saved by someone else don't just go, thanks. Now, what did I have on my schedule today? That salvation changes you. It's always this feeling, even though you were freely given that gift, there's this feeling of, man, I, I owe all. I owe everything. This is the grace of God. And that we could never be good enough. And our tendency when we sin, when, we've, when we do wrong that we know is wrong, so we get that guilty conscience, we go, oh man, I messed up. I, I'm, I'm going to I'm do better. I mean it this time. You know what? I know that's the 572nd time that I've done that, but, but this time, this time, I'm going to do better. I mean it. And what we do is the same thing that the prodigal son did in Luke chapter 15, where he wasted his inheritance that the father had given him. And he goes, oh man, I've blown it. I've wasted all that was given to me. Uh, man, this pig slop. What am I doing eating pig slop? Well, man, even, even my father's hired servants, even the people that work for my dad, they got more than enough to eat. I, I need to at least go home and try and just see if my dad will give me a job so that I don't die out here eating pig slop. And we go back to God when we sin and we go, could I... Uh, maybe if I, God, I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to give more and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve more and I'm going to do more. Uh, I, I messed up and help me, help me make it right. And to those who would try and use means of works to come back to God, you're refusing the work of the gospel and you're trying to earn your own righteousness. You're trying to put yourself in a position where you could boast to where the son could go, man, I really blew it and messed it up, you know, oh, but I'm back and I'm working hard. Now I'm earning a wage, guys, and I'm sitting here at the table with all you, and man, I used to be a son. Stinks that I'm not, but at least, you know, I'm here at the table eating what I've earned. That's what we do when we feel like we earn God's grace. When we feel like we bring our part to the table. When we don't recognize that it is only by grace so that we cannot boast throughout scripture. God declares over and over several times, my glory is my own. I will share it with no other. See, the gospel puts us in a position where our only response is the glory is yours. You are awesome. You are good. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are loving. You are forgiving. You are holy and righteous and just and somehow also merciful and gracious and forgiving. To where all we can do is sit here back and just, you're awesome. 
Can I just respond to what you've given me? We cannot earn it. And we see in that Luke 15 parable as well, the father sees that son coming back, trying to work, and just ignores that request, embraces him, hugs him. Dad, I've sinned against you and against God. Can I please work for you? Doesn't even acknowledge the request. He just says, bring the robe. Bring the ring and put it on his finger. Go kill the fatted calf. My son who was dead is alive again. Let's throw a party. So to you today who have sinned, even after coming to faith in Christ, I want you to see yourself in that son and then see the father saying to you, I don't care about your desire to work. I don't want you sitting at the lower table, the lower table of work whereby you can think that you had something to do with what you're consuming. I'm your father who loves you. Come back and sit at my table. I know you blew it, but I have more than enough rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ, where he welcomes and embraces and holds us close. And it's that act of grace that he gives to us that makes us a joyful laborer in our Father's field. Or we're not going, uh, is it time to punch in, punch out yet? When you recognize what we've wasted and the Father welcomes us back, I wasn't even planning on going to the prodigal son today, so maybe the Lord just wants you to hear that. As we continue on, chapter 2, verse 11. After preaching the gospel of how we're saved by grace through faith, Paul says, therefore, therefore, since we've been saved by grace through faith, since we've been pulled out of that darkness and into light, since we've been saved from death, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Wait, what? <laughs> Teacher time, yeehaw. All right. If I was God, I would have picked a different symbol for the covenant than circumcision, but I'm not God and he's infinitely wise. God, Gentiles, I have awards for penmanship. Gentiles and Jews. As we read this passage, I just want you to notice these things as we continue to read. Well, actually, let me recap that whole circumcision issue. He's saying, those of you who are uncircumcision by what is called circumcision through the flesh, which is done by hands... The old covenant, the people of God, Israel, they had covenant with God. The covenant symbol of being in covenant with God was circumcision. Awkward, I know, but that's what God picked. And so he was saying, those of you who are not in circumcision, meaning you're not the people of God, you're not Jews through God's old covenant. He's saying Gentiles, that's what we see here. There are Jews, the people of God, who have the covenant of God, and everyone else, Gentiles, probably everyone in here, I'm like an eighth Jew, so I'm kind of mostly here with a foot over the line. 
Maybe wherever you're at, that's what this is talking about. Anytime you see scripture, Gentiles and Jews, Jews and people who are not Jews. That's all that means. As we go on, remember that you were at that time separated, Gentiles, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's saying, you guys over here, Remember, this letter to the Ephesian church is in what's modern-day Turkey. It was ancient-day Asia Minor. So these are people that, by and large, mostly are not Jews. There would have been some Jews in the church as they dispersed abroad in the Roman Empire. There would have been some Jews there, but this is mostly non-Jews. So when he's saying, you were far off, you who had no hope, you were uncircumcision by what's called circumcision, meaning you weren't in covenant with God. Remember, you guys were far away from God. Verse 13, here we have another wonderful but, like we had in chapter two, but God. Here in verse 13, we say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, talking about the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Take note of that word peace. Who has made us both one. Both Gentiles and Jews, he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new human in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's that word again. And he came and preached Peace, there's that word again. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those of you who were near. When he says that, he preached peace to you who were far off. He's talking about the Gentiles. And he preached peace to those of you who were near, talking about the Jews, the people who were the covenant people of God from the Old Testament. Now, why do, do both parties need peace preached to them because of the two times in that passage that we saw hostility present. Hostility between Gentiles and Jews and hostility between man and God. This hostility that separates us from God and us from each other is what we like to call sin. See, there is a divider between us and God and there's a divider between us and each other. It's the same divider, but it functions differently. See, Scripture teaches over and over that sin separates us from God. The way that that separates us from God is because God is holy, meaning he is completely other. He's flawless, perfect, righteous. In fact, this is why 1 John in chapter 1, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if anyone says that they have fellowship with God while walking in darkness, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. So he's saying God's character is holy, righteous, light, no darkness at all. And so if you say that you have fellowship with the God who is light, but you walk in darkness, the truth's not in you and you're deceiving yourself. And so we can see here that that sin, that darkness separates us from God because he cannot have fellowship with unrighteousness, with, with sin. He can't do it. He won't do it. But so we're separated from God by the fact that we cannot have fellowship with him by his nature of being holy and righteous and us being sinful and flawed. The way that sin separates us from each other 
Is our behaviors, our views, our perspectives of one another, our selfishness that acts out in ways that cause frustrations, cause hatred, cause issues between each other. And so what happens is we tend to look at these two divisions as two divisions. We look and we say, okay, there is a wall of hostility between man and there's another wall of hostility between man and God. And Jesus Christ reconciled us back to God. He fixed the relationship that we had that was separated and estranged by sin. So Jesus separates that hostility right there. And then we can now, man can come back to God. And what we think is this division, this hostility between man is then answered another way. And this passage that we read here in Ephesians chapter two, and let me tell you, many other places in scripture tells us that the cross of Jesus Christ also is the same exact thing that handles that division. So when we see these two separations of a hostility and we try and treat them differently, this is what results in ideologies where we look to something other than scripture to show us how to fix sinful issues between humanity. See, when people hate each other, don't like each other, when people are racist, uh-oh, he's going there. When there's racism that exists, that is from the sinful heart of man. And when we try and use things other than the word of God, the truth of God, and allowing God to change our heart to fix the sinful heart of man... We just get into all sorts of messes. This is fixed the same way this is fixed. The cross. When we see in this passage, the two, let's read this one more time and I want you to pay attention to how many times it's mentioned the two and the one. Let's pick up in verse 14. For he himself is, or let's go verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, 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 one. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, in ordinances that he might create in himself, what? One new man in place of the what? Two. So by making peace and might reconcile us, what? Both to God in what? One body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, the Jews. For through him we, what? Both have access in what? One spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. What we see here is there's not two different hostilities. There is one hostility that is both the divider between man and the divider between God, and they are both answered the same way in the blood of Jesus on the cross. That the hostility that is there between people and the hostility between us and God is removed in the cross. 
where we no longer look at each other as black, white, Hispanic, Asian, that's removed in the cross. And it's not solved by other ideologies, other philosophies, other ideas, other extra-biblical sources where if I read this author and this author and this author, and listen, I'm not saying don't expose yourself to other ideas. What I am saying is we believe in sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture, that anything we need to know about this life, about our relationship with God, our relationship with others, is given to us through the inspired word of God. And if we start looking to other sources to try and tell us how to fix sinful relationships, listen, this isn't just, I touched on race because that's prevalent today, but this is marriage. You're two sinners married. Guess what? You get past day one, you're going to find opportunity to be mad at each other. Why? Because you sin. You're selfish. I'm selfish, more so than my wife, I feel. And so this hostility between people is conquered in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, whereby he takes the two, the both, the two, those who are far, those who are near, whatever kind of division or separation there could be, and anyone who is in Christ is united, one in him, in one spirit. So, if there's ever a day where we got to hear this, 2020 and 2021, anytime we let something divide us as believers, we elevate that above the cross. Whether that's skin color, it's sinful to let that divide you. Whether that is political party, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, uh, Independent, all the different whatevers, if, if your passion and commitment and dedication to your party or ideology politically and socially makes it to where you cannot fellowship with other believers because they're on the other side or with different views, then you have brought your politics over the cross. And we have said that the cross is not greater than those things that divide us. Should you have an opinion? Yes. Should you pray and think and research and debate? Yes. Should you let it divide you from other believers? Absolutely not. And when you find, what was the key word here of these dividers? Hostility. When you find those subjects or any other subject begin to ring up hostility in your heart towards this other believer that you might be talking to, you need to recognize that you are putting that thing above the cross and you're idolizing it. Because the cross brings us all back together, one in Christ. How, how cunning, how deceptive, how strategic is the enemy that we could have two years where things that are beneath the cross that, let me tell you, have been happening for thousands of years, guys. This ain't the first pandemic. This ain't the first time racism has existed. This is not the first time there's been sociopolitical struggle and turmoil. What has been constant is the cross throughout all of it. 
and the fact that the body of Christ is one in Christ. And if your passionate conviction about any of those things separates you from other believers, then you're elevating your, your, your passion and commitment to that thing above the cross. So what we do when we see hostility rising within us, when we're talking about someone we disagree with, when we're talking to someone or we see someone who lands on the other side of whatever these conversations are, when we sense hostility, we need to repent and we need to let scripture confront us with all of these, the two become one. That's talking about Gentiles and Jews, but it goes into every area if you're a child of God. All the things that could divide us and could separate us are less than the cross. And if I'm going to have division, a right division would only be me saying, that's error, that's not truth. The truth is over here. And there's a lot of issues in our world today that are extra biblical, that we need scripture to inform. And, and let me just say this. Man, I was not planning on doing all this. A lot of people let their politics inform their theology more than they let their theology inform their politics. And let their loyalty be to their party more than their loyalty is to the king above the parties. These are worldly kingdoms. They rise, they fall. Should we want what's best for our country? Of course. Should we pray and should we participate in voting? And should we participate in social discourse? Absolutely. The moment that it lets you start putting hostility between you and other believers, and guess what? Even unbelievers is the moment where you're flirting with sin. These issues cannot be fixed by new rules. These issues cannot be fixed by you're not allowed to and you better. These, fish, these issues are only fixed by the Holy Spirit coming in and changing the heart of man. You want to cure racism? Introduce someone to Jesus who shows that there is one mankind. And there are no divisions of race or country or class or whatever these different divisions are. There are there is only one, and it is in Christ or not in Christ. And even when we look at those who are not in Christ, when we are in Christ, we don't look at them like the horrible, awful, evil enemies. We remind ourselves of Ephesians chapter 6, where it says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And we recognize these are people in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where we see they're walking according to who they are, meaning by nature sinners following the passions of the, of the body and the mind. And so we don't look at them with disdain. We look at them with compassion going, God, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes to their need for Jesus Christ. God, I ask that you would bring them to repentance. God, if you would use me, if you could help me be a, a voice, a beacon of light, a messenger of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, rather than being someone who just evil sinner, we all once walked and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, sin created and still creates hostility with God and hostility with man. That's why this is a gospel issue. That's why this is a, a, a cross issue. This is why 
The answers are not found in policies and are not found in secular ideologies. And those things, I guess, can be helpful. But ultimately, the only thing that can make you love someone that you hate is when you have a heart change. As we go back to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, notice that both in one, that hostility, and as we read through this one last time, just let it sink into your heart what God accomplished on the cross, that it transcends our divisions. I'm going to do verse 13 again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Uh, what, what was this divider called? The two times it was called hostility. That's why he came preaching pre peace. That's why Christ is our peace, because there's hostility why is it that Paul opens and closes every letter with grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ? Variations of what I just said are how he opens and closes every single letter because the gospel is that God takes the hostility that is between us and he preaches peace through the grace of Jesus Christ where we don't look at God fearful and terrified of the judgment anymore. We recognize that that wrath was poured out on the cross and that cross stands today to testify that we have been reconciled by God who made peace with us through the cross, through the blood of his son, while we were enemies with God. The hostility Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, conquering the hostility, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, talking about humanity, in the place of the two, here it is again, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing what? The hostility. And what did he preach? He came and preached peace. Peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens. Just like 20 years ago, we're like American citizens. We're all in this together. As Christians, we are citizens of heaven, all in this together with a common enemy, a common foe. And shame on us if we let him outsmart us to divide us by non-eternal things that have been cyclically happening for thousands of years. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The answer is the gospel. The answer is what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And when we put ourselves in Christ by placing our faith in him, we no longer have the right to say, "Uh uh-uh, they're not in your family because of X, Y, Z. That's the father's responsibility. And I'm gonna gonna stay away from them. I'm gonna avoid, nope, 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 nope. We've gotta let the cross be bigger than those things. We've gotta let the cross be bigger than those things. We've gotta let the cross be bigger than those things. Let it unite us. Today feels pretty far removed from the unity that we experienced 20 years ago after 9-11. And if there were ever a people group that ought to show that. Why is it that, we're so f- that we don't look like that anymore? Because we're not there. We don't, we don't feel it. It feels so far away. It feels so long ago the same way. The cross can feel so far away. The cross can feel so long ago. We've got to remember, remind ourselves of the cross that unites us, which is greater than what divides us. God, we thank you for your word that teaches us truth, that confronts our error, that confronts our sin and opens our eyes to the truth. God, I ask that today you would let it be true of us, what we saw in chapter two of Ephesians, that we would be a people who have been united in Christ, that no matter what divisions or factions or separations there could have been, none of them are greater than the division of sin that was conquered on the cross. And therefore, the cross is greater. You are greater than whatever little nuanced thing could separate us. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit to do what my words cannot do. And I ask you to soften the hardened hearts of those who have hatred or hostility or animosity or bitterness towards others especially towards other believers, but even others that are not believers. And I ask that you would do the work that only you can do for the good of your people, for the praise of your glory, for your namesake, God. Let it be a testimony to the world how great you are that we love one another and walk in such unity. In Jesus' name, amen.